Hey guys, thanks again for joining for the book of Colossians. Now, I can't believe this, but we only have two weeks left of the book of Colossians, and then something very exciting is happening. We are going to begin in-person gatherings very soon for Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes. And so stay connected with us as we release information about Sunday services beginning here pretty soon. And so uh, we're going to keep studying Colossians and doing it over this format. And so today we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, we've been looking at the person and the work of Jesus. Uh, and how when someone believes upon Jesus, they're given a whole new identity. Um, what they used to be in the flesh becomes something entirely new by the Spirit of God. And the Bible uses different words to describe what happens to a person when they come to know Jesus. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians says that you become a new creation. Jesus in John chapter 3 says that you are born again. And here in Colossians, Paul is using this idea of that you become a new man or a new woman in Jesus Christ. Now, all of these ways to describe what has happened to a person when they meet Jesus is that something new happens. A change occurs in a person's life. What was old gets replaced by something that is new. And this is the work that God does in any person who comes to realize that in and of themselves, they're lacking. And, and that there is a deficiency in our ability to live our lives by ourselves. That we need a power outside of ourselves to help us live life in the fullest kind of way that we are meant to live. Because of sin, humanity will always come up short in living the way that we were meant to. But in Jesus, by realizing what his death and resurrection means for you, you get to see God fill up what is lacking in your life. You have the forgiveness of your sins, and then you get the indwelling of the Spirit to then live for God. And it's it's amazing. And anybody who has experienced this profound change that happens when you come to know Jesus can testify, it's incredible. And so the simple message uh, contained in what Christians call the gospel, it's able to transform your life today. And maybe you've come across this message some way or another. Maybe you just came across it on social media or somebody sent this to you. But perhaps you are living your life today without Jesus at the center of it. That you would maybe even say you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, today I pray that you would confess your need before God and that Jesus would come into your life and he would fill you and satisfy you. This can happen to you today. And so as we get into this portion of scripture that we're going to look at today, I want to remind you that this is flowing from our identity in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk today about how a Christian ought to live their life, the, the practice and the obedience that we're called to live with. But we need to remember that Christianity is fundamentally not a set of rules, but it is fundamentally about a transformed life that happens by God's power, by God's love, and by God's grace as it takes hold of your life. 
And so let's remember that. We can't isolate this text and have it just become something as a checklist for us to live by. See, the message of Colossians is meant to be received as a whole. The unfortunate thing that often happens is that we isolate certain passages of Scripture and we see them as sort of like a to-do list. When really Paul gets to this point of, yes, things that we're to do as Christians, but it's coming all out from our identity in Jesus. Let me remind you just even briefly what the book of Colossians is all about. Paul has been showing that Jesus is great and that he holds the supreme position over all of creation and that he has given me a privileged position as a child of God. Jesus did this in my life when he showed me his grace and I received him by faith. And so now that I'm a new man in Jesus Christ, therefore this is how I ought to live my life. See, the instructions for how we're supposed to live our lives flow from and come after knowing Jesus in being known by him as his child. And so let's look now at verses 12 through 13 as we begin to unpack how we're called to live as Christians. It says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. So uh, Paul's been speaking now of what we put off as believers. We, we put off this old nature of sin, and, and we've put on this new nature that's being renewed by the knowledge of Jesus. And as a new person, as a new creation in Christ, we are now identified, as Paul says here, as God's elect. And this simply means that you are chosen by God. Now this word elect, it is beautiful and it shows us all that God has done in saving us. And make no mistake, you had nothing to do with your salvation. It wasn't anything done on your part, on your choosing, with your effort. God saved you. God elected you. Now, there's a human responsibility in which we need to confess our need to God and put our trust and our faith in Him, but there's no works, there's no effort that will ever bring you before God. See, we are chosen by God. As Ephesians 1.11 says, that in Him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, this gives, gives me great comfort and assurance to know that God has chosen me. I'm his elect. Now, I know that Christians sometimes really love that word elect and the theology that often comes with that. Um, and other Christians struggle with a word in the Bible, such as the word elect in the theology that often comes with it. But the word elect, which is the Greek word eklektos, it's in our Bibles and it's not going anywhere. So we have to, as believers, come to terms with a sovereign God 
who chooses for himself people that he wants to set his salvation upon. However, let me say this. As I live my life here in Palos Verdes, as I go to the grocery store, as I recreate with my family, um, I have a burden to see people saved. And I don't know who the elect are. And so that is why I preach the gospel. And, And I like what Charles Spurgeon said at one point. He said, if the Lord had put a yellow stripe down the backs of the elect, I would go up and down the street, lifting up shirt tails, finding out who had the yellow stripe. And then I'd give them the gospel. But God didn't do it that way. And so what he's asserting is that he's saying, therefore, we preach the gospel. We don't know who God's going to save. We don't know who the elect are. And so we preach a whosoever gospel. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is offered to anybody. And so we believe that God has elected those whom he has saved. However, we preach a gospel because we do not know who God has chosen. I like what Spurgeon also said. He said, uh, God, save the elect and then elect some more. I think that's just a beautiful heart that Christians ought to carry with them. And so we preach the gospel. We preach it because we believe that in Jesus, we find salvation and it's in him and him alone. And so if you are the elect of God, Now, as I say that, you're going to know if you're the elect of God. You're going to know if Jesus has saved you. If you don't know that you are God's chosen one, his vessel, then I pray that today you would even come to discover that God has chosen you and you would receive his great love. So if you are the elect of God, there's going to be two significant marks about you. Says it right here. You are holy and you are beloved. These are the things that God has set upon his children because they're marks of his own character. We have sort of like a family resemblance with our heavenly father. God is holy, therefore his elect children are holy. God is loving and therefore his elect children are beloved. And so we are expected by God to be different because we are different. He has made us holy. He has made us loved. And so therefore, we're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer living our lives running around as if there was no God. We are the children of God, the elect of God. And so we live holy lives and we live loving lives. So if these things are lining up with you, if you are elect, if you are holy, if you are loved, well then, we are to put on these wonderful characteristics that describe a believer in Jesus, which we're going to look at now, uh, right here where it says, put on. Put on. Now, we're to put on like pieces of clothing, these different qualities. And we're going to go through this list and just talk about each thing that we're to put on, and I hope it encourages you. So here we go. We're going to put on tender mercies. Now, tender is a familiar word for us, uh, especially if you like to eat meat. Uh, What we understand about things that are tender is that they're soft. And so we can translate this as to have soft mercies, put on soft mercies. And, And you might be thinking, well, what's mercy? I've often described mercy by also describing grace. See, grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. 
while mercy is God withholding from you what you do deserve. And what do we deserve as sinners? We deserve wrath and judgment. But God in his mercy has shown us kindness. He withheld what we deserve. Therefore, God has been merciful to us. So if in the new man we put on tender mercies, we're going to have a soft approach to other people. And what this looks like is that we have compassionate hearts. Christians are not supposed to be harsh. They're not supposed to be judgmental. They're not supposed to be dishing out wrath upon other people. Now, if you are living your Christian life and you think that you have a pretty good idea about what other people deserve, and you're happy to administrate that punishment that they deserve, then you're not wearing tender mercies. See, when we put on tender mercies, we will be soft and kind toward other people. This leads into the next thing we put on, which is kindness. So tender mercy speaks more to the attitude of the Christian, whereas kindness speaks more about the deeds and the actions of the Christian. And so I'll just put it like this. Are you a nice person? Do you do nice things for people? That's kindness. Kindness is action that reveals compassion. Kindness can take on all different kinds of forms. It can be a smile. It could be a compliment. It could be a hug. It could uh, be offering somebody a meal. Uh, and, And kindness should be shown to everyone, to your family, to restaurant workers, to the DMV clerk, to the person who goes around in their metered car uh, writing parking tickets. We ought to show kindness to all people. Now, hopefully you're kinder to your spouse than you are to the person who wrote you a parking ticket. Now, Now, let me just say this. Often people find that it is hardest to show kindness to the people that are closest to them. I'll say that again. People often find that it's hard to show kindness to the people that are closest to them. I believe that God is challenging us in this generation to be kind to our families, to be kind to our friends, to be kind to our coworkers. Um, We have to treat people the way that we ourselves would want to be treated. And I don't know a single soul that doesn't want to be treated with simple kindness. Then we're to put on humility. Now, so much can be said about humility. And humility, I think, is best demonstrated, obviously, by the life of Jesus. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, 5, to let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus. And what was the mindset of Jesus? Well, it was a lowly mind. It was one who esteemed people as greater than himself and lifted up other people's needs ahead of his own. Interestingly, this word used here for humility seems to have actually originated in the New Testament because the Greek language didn't have an appropriate word at this time to describe humility because the people of that time didn't even see humility as a virtue that was to be desired. And so Paul, in a sense, sort of brings in this new word into the New Testament of humility. So Christianity really did, in a sense, invent or at least redeem this great characteristic. And then we're told to put on meekness. 
Now, meekness flows out from humility. It's like the child of humility. And there's two ways that I like to define meekness. The first one is um, that I, the first way I learned it was you take the word meek and you divide it down the middle. And what do you read? Me, <laughs> and it's kind of a silly way to remember what meekness is, but a more accurate definition that I found is this, that meekness is power under control. See, a meek person understands that they have authority given to them in Jesus and that they have privilege as a child of God. But what they do is they wield that power with control and they use that authority to benefit other people and they don't use it for themselves. That's meekness. We're also told to put on long suffering and the way I also learn long suffering is also by dividing it down the middle. Only this time, when you divide down the middle, you switch the order. So long suffering can be defined as someone who suffers long. And what this means is, is, is simply that you are patient, that you are, um, when people wrong you, you will suffer long with them. See, God has this quality in himself. We know that God suffers long with those that he desires to see come to repentance. God wishes that no person would perish. And so he waits patiently with long suffering that people would turn from their sin and turn toward Jesus. Now, people can often abuse this characteristic in people and in God. Uh, I like what Peter says that uh, some concern this long suffering of God as, uh, as being slack concerning his promises. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Well, God's not slack in his promises that he's going to come back. He said he would, but he's long-suffering because he wants as many people as possible to come into a right relationship with him. And so we're to put on long-suffering. We're to uh, allow ourselves to struggle for a, for a time with people, that we're to love them in patience and with endurance. And then we're told to be bearing with one another. And I like that this is a characteristic that we put on as Christians because what it's telling us, guys, is that the Bible recognizes that people aren't always easy to get along with. See, bearing with one another means that we put up with each other, that you and I are gonna make a lot of mistakes in our lives, and that we need to be bearing with one another, forgiving each other our wrongs and being merciful and gracious toward one another. We need to recognize that all of us are going to fail and therefore affect the harmony of right relationship. And so by grace, we would, uh, we would esteem each other with this sort of forbearance. We would allow each other to have second chances and third chances and fourth chances in relationships because we need that kind of support and encouragement as we live this life of faith because none of us are perfect. And so then we're also to be forgiving toward one another. I like that as we're getting into this list, notice that one another comes up often. It's because in Christianity, it is not an individualistic thing. See, we're saved individually, but that we're then placed into community, that we then come into a family of God. And so then we're to be forgiving toward one another. 
Now, forgiveness is so powerful. It's transformative. And I know that there are oftentimes Christians who fail to either receive forgiveness or fail to administer forgiveness. And we see here that if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also forgive. What Paul's saying here is, if God has forgiven you, then you need to freely be able to forgive others. Now, forgiving means that you not only let go of the debt that somebody might owe to you, but then you actually show them favor instead. See, forgiveness in a biblical sense goes to the point where um, not only do you release the debtor, but you love the debtor. And this is powerful. And I'm just going to encourage you right now that you would even ask the Holy Spirit right now if there is anybody in your life that you have been bitter toward, that you have been unforgiving toward, and that God would give you the ability to offer them forgiveness. Now, you might be waiting for somebody to come and ask for forgiveness. Well, the Bible doesn't say that you only forgive if somebody asks for it. The Bible says to forgive even if your debtor doesn't even ask. And so we need to come to that place where we're going to forgive people their debts, just as Christ has forgiven us our debts. Now, I'm telling you that if you have unforgiveness in your heart, the damage is on you, my friend. I think about how oftentimes people live their lives in misery because they're harboring this unforgiveness, all the while their offender is probably off living their life freely and without worry. Why don't you just free yourself today and ask God to allow you to forgive? Then verse 14 says, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So just like you're putting on all these pieces of clothing, you finally get to the final piece that's going to wrap the whole thing together. My wife, she loves wraps, a type of women's clothing where you kind of just put it on. It sort of just finishes the outfit. I sort of see love as a wrap that completes the outfit and brings it all together in harmony. And that is what we're to do when we put on love. It is like the glue. We see that word, the bond of perfection. It's the glue that holds it all together. And so love is that final thing that we put on and just makes it all work together. Then verse 15, it says, And let the peace of God rule in your heart, hearts to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now we're going to highlight here these two things, peace and thankfulness. Let's talk about first peace, because he's saying here, let peace rule in your hearts. Now that word rule is an interesting word. It has the idea of let it be like an umpire. And I picture how an umpire in baseball stands behind home plate. And as the pitches come in, that umpire has this sort of authority to be able to decide whether a ball is a strike or it is a uh, ball or if it's hit and it's foul or if it's fair. And in the same way, we're to have peace be the umpire of our hearts. It's as if peace were standing right there behind the home plate of your heart so that when anything comes into your life, it can discern as whether this is fair or this is foul. 
I love that idea of peace ruling, umpiring in your heart. And then we're called in one body. Again, we're in a family. We're in a body as the church. And therefore, we're to be thankful. Thankfulness is that thing that just um, puts the cherry on top. Paul is listing off all these characteristics and he's like, oh yeah, be thankful. Because thankfulness is what's going to allow all of these things to just kind of flow out and gush out of, of your life. And then there's still more rich scripture here that we're going through. Verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So not only are we to let the peace of God rule in our hearts, but we're also to let the word of God dwell in us richly. Notice that the words being used by Paul is put on and let, which means that the Christian has a responsibility to allow these things to take place in their lives. See, this verse is beautiful because it's almost identical to Ephesians 5, which suggests that Paul is wanting this to be found amongst all Christians, not just those who are in Colossae, not just those who are in Ephesus, but in those even today here in Palos Verdes, California. And, and let me break down what he's saying, if I may. Just he, He's talking about these different types of um, ways in which the word will dwell in you richly. And here, I'm just going to tell you right now, go to Ephesians 5.18 as it talks about being filled with the Spirit. And in the similar passage in Ephesians, you'll see that he talks about the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly, but he also talks about the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. Uh, Paul was very uh, firm believer that you needed both the Word and the Spirit. And so the Spirit of God and the Word of God are to, to be at home in your life. They're to be uh, dwelling richly within you. So don't be frugal in letting the Word of God dwell in you. That's why it's important to read your Bible often. Uh, don't go any day without asking the Spirit of God to empower and enrich you. We need the Word of God and we need the Spirit of God every day in our lives as, as Christians. And so, we have the Word in our lives, we have the Spirit of God in our lives, and this is what's gonna happen when we have that. We share our wisdom with others. We admonish others. We teach others. See, the Word of God and the Spirit of God in you are not just meant to be for you. It's meant to be for others in both wisdom, admonishing, and teaching. When a person truly understands the purpose of the Word and the Spirit, they will realize that it is not simply for them and them alone, but it is for other people. That's why we're called to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, which talks about let it come out in music and, and varieties of music, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are meant to show that there's a variety of types of music as the word of God is going to come out in these different ways. Well, let's look now at the last verse, verse 17, as we'll wrap it up with that. And it says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, to God the Father through him. 
Another powerful thing Paul is saying right here, that in all of this instruction for how the Christian ought to live, um, Paul's kind of saying, let me give you just one last thing that's going to be a catch-all for you. Whatever you do, in word, things you say, and indeed, your actions, the way you live, let it all be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through him. See, that's the life of a Christian. In the things we say and in the things we do, we do it all unto the glory of God. So a transformed life, a believer in Jesus who has right relationship with him because they are God's elect, this is what their life is going to look like. And so as we close here, I just want to end by saying this, that perhaps you've heard all these great qualities and they're yours to have in Jesus. So put them on. But maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never put your trust in him. Well, today you can simply by believing that he wants to give you these things. See, I have a three-year-old son and he uh, oftentimes is in uh, the cold water, like a swimming pool or the ocean, and he comes in and he's all shivering and cold and he's got snot just coming out of his nose. And as a father, what I often do is I'll take a towel, like a, a warm, big towel, and I'll come and, and I'll wrap him up inside of that towel. And I see the transformation that happens. That shivering slows down and he be- becomes warm and happy. Uh, I wrap him up in my arms in that towel and and that snot coming out of his face, I wipe away and there's laughter and there's joy, there's peace, there's tranquility. There's something about that transformation that happens when a loving father wraps his child up with, with sort of like this blanket of love, this wrap of love. And that's offered to you today. God loved you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross for you. And he raised him from the dead, proving to you that death is defeated, that the shame of sin no longer has to be in your life, and that you can walk together with him as his child. And he will put these things upon you like you would put on this wonderful outfit. You can be a new creation. You can be a new man, a new woman. You can be a child of God today by simply placing your faith in Jesus, turning from sin and turning toward God, your Redeemer. Amen. God bless you.